Did you see it? I, well, I looked up Philip Hammond's wife's name. What is his wife's name? Susan. Susan? Which I'll talk about again in a second, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, welcome back. Welcome back. Um, episode 7. And I think where we want to start is with a quite, quite a significant follow-up section from our previous episode about... Um, office culture, discrimination, etc. that we talked about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I messaged you the day after, the evening after maybe, and I was like, there's one big group of people that we forgot to mention and that was people with disabilities. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Which, having listened to it back earlier to do the edit, we didn't, it, we didn't even mention it once. No. It never came up. No. Which I feel quite bad about. Um, especially because we know somebody who has got a disability working at your, uh, the first place you worked. Oh yeah, beep. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yeah, I, I completely forgot about. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know whether we sh- we need to rehash all the arguments, but I, I guess they they all apply to people with disabilities as well. I haven't, apart from your friend, I, I don't know anybody else um, that I've worked with that have had a a disability. Um, no, not a not a serious, serious, but yeah, not. Not something that would really, that's really like obvious. No. Well, that hampers their. Yeah, yeah. What would, how would you say that? Ham- not hampers their job, but I don't know. Again, I've only seen people with disabilities in the big first company I worked for. Yeah. Not seen anybody with disabilities since. No. no. No, that's what I was thinking as well. Um, but yeah, so we should apologise for ignoring that big group of underrepresented people in software engineering. Sorry about that. Um, but we did remember just not whilst we were recording. <laughs> so what else did I want to say? Oh, there was, so there was an interesting thing in, in Reddit today, actually, um, about uh, on the mental health side that you were talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and talking about how um, it's still not very well represented, not very well talked about, etc. And I saw that there was a Today I Learned on Reddit, which was that in 1972, the Democratic vice presidential candidate Thomas Eagleton was forced to drop out of the race after he was humiliated by the revelation that he had been treated for chronic depression. Yeah, gosh, I did also see that. <laughs> we're apparently in the same mind high. Yeah, I saw that. That surprised me. I, I, Which, considering we were talking about about it in the last episode, I thought was particularly apt and almost unbelievable, really. That, that... Yeah, it's I, I read a fact that Norway or Finland, Norway's prime minister took two weeks off to deal with mental health issues. I think depression. Right. In near the year 2000. And it was in a quiz I was doing about mental health. And the answers were like all these different countries. And then one of them was a Scandinavian country. And I was like, it's probably going to be that one. Yeah. <laughs> one of the answers was like Mexico. And I was like, can't imagine. That. So that was, I assume that was a big deal that they took two weeks. Yeah. I mean, and it's still like, there is still quite taboo. That was a while ago as well. 20 years ago, nearly. Yeah. I'm getting old. But yeah, I guess in the 70s, that was a big taboo thing. Yeah, I mean, to the point where he couldn't run or did, felt like he would never win because people would be judging him because he yeah. was treated for an, uh, an illness that he had. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah, that is weird. Considering as well, like, in terms of, again, as we were saying, physical illness, I can't, was it um, Roosevelt or yeah, that basically couldn't walk? He had, had polio. Yeah, yeah. so he was paralysed, but there was like an unwritten agreement with the press that they would never sh- take a picture of him like trying to get in and out of a car and stuff. Get like away that. with that now, would you? Yeah, but they, but then they didn't. They were like, "Well, we have to report the fact that this guy's got depression, even if it was a similar." Yeah, 
because times have changed. I mean, that was even longer ago, but... Um, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, but bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought that bizarre. was a, an unbelievable article. Yeah, that is surprising. Um, and my third third piece of follow-up, actually, is that Philip Hadman's wife isn't Philippa, disappointingly. What's her name? Susan. Susan. We're just going to leave that Do there. we call female listeners Susan now or Philippa? I think Philippa. <laughs> Philippa. Well, we've got to stay with it. It has to be Philippa. I was just disappointed that it wasn't Philippa. I did ask the question, so I thought I would at least do some research on that. Um yeah, those are the those are the three things about uh, from me on on follow up from the last episode. Yeah, sorry about not mentioning disability. Sorry, um, but it's I feel like it's the same. There's a lot of the same problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. What same about what about on your side? I assume you've come heavily armed with some stats. Well, after. I've tried to come heavily <laughs> armed with some stats, and what I found is that stats for this stuff is really difficult to find. Yeah. So I have got some just random random stats. One stat that I found out is that there are more Asian computer science graduates from Stanford than white graduates. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. Yep. Uh, and I saw Warlink everything. There's more. So in the US programmers, white programmers is the highest proportion, then Asian, then black, then all the others. But what's not really clear in that data is what percentage of the US is white, Asian, and black in the mm. first place. So presumably white is winning because they're just loads of white people in America. But um, but we were saying before the show, although I don't think I have direct stats, but it feels like particularly in America, but maybe everywhere, black people are underrepresented. Yeah. It feels like. It feels like for me. I would yeah, agree with that. Because it just seems... I was reading a, a Quora question where someone was like, why are there so few black computer programmers and there were these people commenting like i have 30 years experience at 20 years um tw- uh, 20 companies in silicon valley and i've met two, <laughs> two yeah. black programmers and i was like whoa that's pretty amazing yeah because definitely in america there's a yeah a percentage of black people must be quite high quite i high. think yeah higher than the number of asian people yeah like i don't know we could probably find that out God, yeah. these stats are pesky that's a census thing I, that must be yeah we'll have to bit. find out but um so yeah I'm, I'm trying to think if there are any other stats um github pull requests are less than 10 percent of them are done by women oh, which okay. does not sounds about yeah. right and i've seen different stats on what percentage of women are programmers 25% was the highest I saw, which okay. feels which feels too high, to be honest, for me. Yeah. But maybe it includes other things related to programming or something. Yeah. But yeah, that I would say that's probably lower from my experience. Right. Yeah. What else? I don't I think that's pretty much all I had on stats. The good stats were really hard to find for this, and that's frustrating. So in the show notes for the last episode, there are a couple of actual well, there's at least one research article that we've linked, right, around people trying to do sort of you know it's not even sort of in common knowledge but it's initial research on the open source pull request stuff right so i feel like yeah. it's still in that stage where primary research is still going on to understand fully yeah the the problem it's not even like just common parlance of oh well you know it's about 10 or 20 percent it's in the, it's very very uncommon in their paper about pull requests on github they think that women's pull requests get accepted more than men's not less but that percentage changes to less if the other people know that it's a woman, which is quite interesting. So so maybe the lesson is that women are more competent, diligent programmers unless men are reviewing their PRs and then reject them. I, yeah. I don't know, but it seems 
So that would imply some inherent bias there in the people yeah. reviewing, right? Because if they don't know, they're like, oh, this is a really good piece of work. Yeah. And then thinking that it's a woman, they're changing their their judgment. There was also a big hacker news thing in 2012 from a woman who said that she'd done five or six PRs and none of them had got merged. Um, but she was, the article's quite well-rounded and she said, uh, you know, everyone was polite and they sort of gave semi-decent reasons. But it's cited in the paper that we just mentioned as one of the things. And we looked at that one of the things that influenced it. And we looked at all of her PRs very quickly. And we, I don't think either of us particularly disagreed with any of the merging or not. Some of them did get merged yeah. later, maybe. But um, Yeah, it was a difficult one. I mean, having skimmed her article, she seemed, like you said, it was quite well-rounded. She wasn't like screaming from the hilltop, yeah, like, this yeah. is unfair. But it's difficult you know like you said from us looking at them they seemed reasonable to not be accepted maybe a couple it looked like they just died but you just don't know whether somebody hasn't linked the github issues correctly like they've closed them and you don't know if they then opened another one to do the thing that they actually wanted her to do um so yeah it's very hard to get to know exactly what's going on there but some of them that didn't get merged like she changed in 2012 which is probably quite a jquery year she'd change some of the documentation for PR to change some of the documentation for jQuery in quite a prominent place. And they were kind of like, they didn't say no, they just said they wanted her to move it to another place. Yeah. And then she didn't, and then it didn't get merged. Well, as far as we know. That's, as far as that's we know. What I, mean. I think that's an example where I think maybe the linking between GitHub issues was the issue there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Anything else on your, any more stats or thoughts or? No, I felt, well, I felt my future career as a politician might have been hampered a little bit by last week's episode when I am running for Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. <laughs> I think I may regret some of the things that I said or didn't say. People with disabilities will obviously be gunning for me when they come back and listen to this podcast in 2035. So I, I <laughs> Maybe we'll have to take it down if you decide that yeah, politics I, is important. If I go for a, a run, yeah. A run. The big run. I think I was thinking, I don't think I'd want to be Prime Minister of the UK. Well, I think I'd rather be Prime Minister of the Internet. But then I thought the Internet's the kind of thing that we'll ever have. That Would that be like running Reddit? CEO of Reddit, is that basically the fill-in job for that? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> kind, yeah, kind of. Kind of. Reddit is like feels like the nation of the Internet for me. But maybe there are other places. 4chan. God, that's a hot potato. Uh, we... What else did we do? We also... So we talked about Linus as well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, Linus Rance, again, was in the show notes, um, the Reddit subreddit that you mentioned. Um, you had a look at the email that he wrote to the Linux kernel mailing list. Yeah. Any any particular thoughts about what he thought? I, I reread it and thought he was uh, un- uncharacteristically honest. Yeah, he was really and, honest. Yeah. And I think... He was right to. It's clear that he was right to send that email, but I think it was a bit of a shock to everybody that he actually did it then of all times. But I, I don't. Again, he never says specifically why he's decided to do that, but um, hopefully for the better. Yeah, I think he. Yeah, he seemed takes a lot of courage to be honest like that, especially for someone like him. Mm. I'm just trying to find if I can find any other good Linus quotes, but maybe we can. Maybe we can do a section. Maybe we can do that at the end. Yeah. And then I'll have to fill in a lot of beeps. <laughs> Get that beep machine ready. Get the beep machine ready, yeah. Hopefully you enjoyed our uh, censorship um, beeps. <laughs> yeah, in the previous episode. Yeah, 
which if for those of you that didn't know, if you're too young, is a modem dial-up sound. And I've picked my favourite point of the dial-up sound of a modem, which is what I call the boingy boings, <laughs> where it goes boing 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 boing. So um, we'll, we'll we'll add a link in the show notes to the full MP3 of a uh, yep royalty free yeah of, of a <laughs> modem dial-up. Yeah, we'll. Uh, Did you? There was an Ars Technica article about the modem, no. where they, I think it was Ars Technica, or there was an image somewhere, maybe on Hacker News, where they described each bit of the noise and why it makes that noise. Oh, really? To actually get so it has like a the full wavelength of the entire noise and then split up into doing what each piece, each piece is doing. Um, so if I can find that, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So you actually know the bit that you like. You can probably work it. It will probably tell you why that bit sounds like that. Sounds like it does. There'll be a reason for it. I guess no one can fake that with their voice no. <laughs> because there is a thing right where people there's this thing before like the internet called was it called phone freaking or something I, which, which is what's that again when I, when last year when i was on holiday we went to um america and we went to breakfast with and it, we were staying in quite a small place and these other people came down and they were mainly sort of baby boomer generation sort of i don't know between 50 and 60 year old people maybe a bit older who had mainly retired and it turns out that effectively three of us there were programmers me and two of the others but they were like obviously a lot older than me yeah and they were basically saying that um one of the guys was saying that him and his wife met because they were in the military and she they were saying something like they all got into ham radios and I was just sat there and it was fascinating because like they were just, they were obviously really nerdy, but the stuff that I was into as a kid, which was like dial up internet and the internet, they didn't have that. So they were into all this amateur radio stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And and the guy was basically bragging that his wife could speak, like could write down Morse code. There's a technical term for all of this, but she, her words per minute in Morse code was something ridiculous. Like it was, I think it was over a hundred. It was like, I think it was like 120. I don't know. I, what translating Morse code into letters and then writing them down? Yeah, and she, hearing it in real yeah, time. Yeah, like it was, I don't know if it's in letters or words, but basically this woman apparently was like a mega at hearing Morse code and writing it down. Wow! So that's kind of cool. I've forgotten what were we were talking about before. I've forgotten. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where oh, the modem thing. Yeah, and they were talking about phone freaking, which was like where you could like hack phone systems to like get long range calls. Yeah, free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with that noise. And they were saying that there are people, I don't know if they were saying they could do it, but there are people that could hack the phone system by like squawking into the phone. Yes, because there was a whistle that you got with some Frosties or something that could do that noise is how no they found way. it. No yeah. way! Like as a kid's toy? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's how it originally came about. <laughs> I didn't know that that was um, a thing. And that's I, awesome. And then I, it was some particular frequency. Wow. And then that overrode the automated system to be like, oh, this is a long range call and it's been approved or something. But then I think, yeah, the second part of that was that people then tried to do it with their... You know, try to do it without the toy because they only sold the toy for a short period. So you can like squawk, but I don't think you can do the boingy boings. What? So just pick up the phone and pretend <laughs> to do it. Try and ring your old dial-up carrier. Try and be a 56k modem or whatever <laughs> it was. <laughs> You'd have to be pretty good. I've I've read a couple of things that um that phone freaking thing where you have to like squawk into the telephone. That a couple of blind people are really good at that. Okay. So trying to big up the disabilities now so now after after our last week's submissions yeah yeah but um yeah i've i've read that in the past i'm trying to think if there's anything else hang on yeah anything else for follow-up we had to make a a longer than usual but that's mainly due to our screw-ups <laughs> um one correction is that the apple pie story actually came from my wife when i told her she was like i told you that oh, okay. across with me so i should should raise that now 
Um, so, and which one was it? Was it the eating as many until you feel unwell? Um, yeah, so, th- so it's like some... There's no, like... She was just... I'd forgotten a lot of the details. So basically, they go to... I can't remember what it is. They get... Maybe I'm getting the order wrong. They drink a carton of apple juice. Then they go to McDonald's to order three apple pies. Yeah. And then they have to try and get back to the office, to the toilet, before all hell breaks loose, is the game. And I don't know what the reasoning or why the game happens. So you drink a carton of apple juice, which is probably a litre of apple juice. Yeah. And you have to eat three apple pies from McDonald's. It might be something else. Maybe an apple? I can't remember. And then you've just got to hold on. You've just got to try and make it back. But I don't know. Is <laughs> apple a natural laxative? I don't know. I oh, d- is that the concern? I don't know. I think it is. Right. So if you have too much, it's, it's trouble. It's, it's bad news. I've got a couple more. I actually wrote down... I've just got loads of things saying this facts and that facts. I don't have them. <laughs> but um, oh, another avenue to get into software dev is self-taught, which is actually pretty common because mm. we were talking about that a little bit with... With your, you training your kid, your guys up, right? Yeah, yeah. And it solves the fact that university intakes can be not proportional to society, but self-taught. Self-taught programmers, quite common. You met, I've come across quite a few. I'm guessing you have too. Uh, yeah. Well, not many actually. A couple of the uh, one of the guys I worked with at my startup, he he was a maths guy and he learned yeah um, R and KDB for yeah. what he needed to do. But my current place, I think it's all a bit more traditional. Guy that sits opposite me has a biology degree or something or something along those lines, and he's he's now a C plus plus programmer. And there's been a, I met a couple. He made of a others. wrong turn there. Somewhere. He made yeah something went terribly wrong in his life. But he, I would say maybe it's quite common though. I've met a few, and I've met a couple that haven't been to university. Yeah, got one one contractor I knew, and there's there's been a few, one with a philosophy degree I knew. But yeah, so that was another thing. Yeah, and another thing that I thought about when I was reading was that you made a comment, which made me think when I was listening to it back, which was that if everybody's a frat boy and they're programmers, then they're thinking in similar ways. Yeah. And you were saying you think that's a good thing. Well, could, they, could, it can could be a good be, thing. Yeah. I've often heard that in terms of diversity at bigger companies, what they'll, the, the thing they'll say is that it's bad if you have too much groupthink. And so you want people from different backgrounds to get... Different perspectives. But what it did make... And I've always kind of just accepted that as like, oh, okay, that must be true. But I must admit there was something nagging at the back of my mind thinking, actually, when you work in a team, the hardest bit about working in a team is getting... Well, one of the hardest bits is getting everybody on the same page in the first place. Mm. Because if you work on your own, you're definitely on the same page. Yeah. Because it's just you. It's your page. It's your page, yeah. It's <laughs> one page and it's your page. But the... Yeah, when you work with other people, you you definitely have to, you know, like you've got to like try and make people agree. So I would agree with you that superficially it sounds like being on the same page is actually a, quite a big win. But then in but maybe it depends what you're doing. Maybe for some things like involving things like governance, and maybe if you're doing the board of a company, mm. a bit of diversity is no bad thing because a bunch of stale white males will say, no, we should definitely do this. Whereas if... Yeah, yeah I think um, I was saying, yeah, primarily on the development side, using examples like um, Uber and some of those Silicon Valley things, I think potentially some of the reasons they were successful uh, quickly or quicker perhaps is because they had that that similar culture. I'm not saying I want to work in one of those cultures, but I feel like there must be a reason. I, I was 
hypothesizing there must be a reason that there's a lot of them them ha- a lot of them around particularly in silicon valley they yeah. must you must get something out of it or else they wouldn't do it and they wouldn't be successful yeah um no i agree but yeah I-, I agree with you my first place was the same it was all you know you're pushing diversity to get different views and different um opinions and perspectives which i think overall is a good thing but potentially when you're you know like you say you're in a small team you need to get you know this thing done you want people to sort of agree you you end up with that risk of spending a lot of time in meetings just discussing the thing rather than actually doing the thing it's going to affect decision speed and sometimes and it depends on the cost of those decisions so if you make a bad decision and then you're that's really bad then maybe it would be much better to spend longer thinking about the decision having more points of view would be better Mm. but if you just need to get some decisions made and build some software it might be better to have people that are all more on the same page Mm. but my one thing i would say about that is it it's more i think it's more of a i don't know what the words are but cultural so for example if you have people coming in from different cultures so maybe based on where they grew up and the way they think i think that could lead to more viewpoints than say like i don't think race or gender just on their own are going to make that much difference compared to like if a bunch of people grew up in the same country and went through the same education system i think that's probably that's the bigger difference i would imagine yeah yeah it's going to be more different education systems or perhaps even where they've worked in the past yeah like if you often if i'd imagine if you went you were working in an investment bank and you got a programmer in who'd being in open source, the way that they'd think about the world would be very different. And yeah. that would probably lead to different viewpoints, which could be good, but could also slow you down. So, yeah. yeah. But that was just something that I thought. That's and a good it, point. I hadn't um, thought about it like that before. So that was that was cool. I think, I think that's it. So this week, we want to talk about requirements. Is yeah, that right? That's right. Um, I'll let you start then. Uh so Michael Parkinson and I are going to be talking about requirements <laughs> today. Um, this is where you realise I've been practising my Michael Parkinson impression <laughs> for the last week. <laughs> he was northern, wasn't he? Yeah, he's from Yorkshire. He's from Yorkshire. So the, the other... the Did other you technically grow up in Yorkshire? No, Lancashire. Lancashire. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to... Cricket faux pas, that was... Sorry, sorry about that. That's okay. So go on, requirements. So requirements. So for people that don't know what requirements are, they're... The specification, so they could be written down or maybe not, of what a piece of software should do mm-hmm. and how it should work. And um, when I was at university, we did do a bit. We did a bit on this, didn't we? Requirements stuff. It was there, and it was like really stodgy and uh, like formalized. And I thought it was the most boring thing in the world. And I thought oh, this is a waste of time. As I'm getting more you know like it's been a few years now i've come to realize that this is a massively important topic yes so maybe i should set out my store as to why i think that yes you've explained what requirements are i think it's pretty obvious why they're a good thing maybe i don't maybe know not. why do people never give them to me that's <laughs> what I so from a from a developer point of view why do you like requirements um because then i know what i need to build yeah and then i can build it and pl- and especially estimate and plan it better yeah because if you don't know what you're going to build how on earth could you know how long it's going to take to build i think the thing is with requirements though is i think there's a developer there's quite a common say two developers coming in a podcast aimed at developers saying requirements are always rubbish it's it's going to be a home run because everybody (laughs) everybody listening is thinking 
why does no one ever give me good requirements? But what's ironic about it is I think actually to some degree as a developer, it can't, if you're on the clock, it doesn't really matter if someone gives you requirements or not. Like they can, like you're going to get paid either way, right? It, it will just mean that the project will take longer because yeah. they'll say, I roughly want this and they'll do some arm waving. You'll go away and start building that. Then they'll realize that that's not really what they wanted. They didn't think it through. There are loads of implications and then you'll just have to sit there and get paid whilst you rebuild it all. Yeah. But that is still kind of frustrating based on the thing we talked about a few episodes ago. The amount of software you can look back on in a year that you've built will be less. Which yeah, for me, I find... be the same thing written four times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah, three or four iterations of the same piece of software because yeah. someone didn't realise what was going to... I mean, sometimes sometimes it's impossible to get the requirements perfect. Like well, I... that was what I was going to say. I think, I think you... It's easy as a developer just to be like, why can't you give me this thing that will make my job easier? Yeah. But on the other side of that is actually getting a set of requirements that are to the point that a developer would be happy. It's actually very hard. Yeah. Um, and there's, I think there's, I think there's a skill. Yes. In giving good requirements. Yes. Investment banks that we've worked in have a job specifically yeah. for yeah. Um, doing this, or maybe even two. At my first place, they had business analysts. And then functional analysts. Yeah. So your business analyst, I think we mentioned, we did mention a business analyst last week, but they go to the business and say, right, what do you want? What's your problem? What can we solve from with an I, with a with IT? Yeah. They get all of those requirements. The business uh, objectives I wouldn't necessarily say they're requirements because they're not requirements in the way you're talking about. The, the business wants to achieve these things with this piece of software. Then that goes to a functional analyst who translates those business um, objectives to into what can you know developer requirements should we say yeah so you had um, two people yeah they had two different roles oh which i've only ever seen that as one yeah which i think the argument was that it's it's next to impossible to find people who are both experts in the business and experts in the technology to be able to give you that understand the business and then also understand the technology to be able to say to give us uh, business problem A, we need to do all of these things. Yeah. So I think what they thought was we'll split it out to a business expert yeah. and a technology expert, and then they they have to interface, and then they've each got a bit of knowledge of the mm. other one. Um, but obviously that means there's an extra person in the way. More people. More people. Probably not good. So in a big organisation, yeah, that, that's the way they tried to solve that problem, to be able to get better requirements to the developers. Yeah. Because... I mean, the thing is, most businesses, whatever you call by the business, you know, the people you're delivering the software to, they want to give you a one-liner of what the thing is that they want, and then they want you to come back and say it's going to take you this much time and cost you them this much money. Yeah. But then it's that it's that uh, sort of friction between getting extracting as much information out of them, but but then potentially them also getting frustrating. It's taking you a long time to even yeah. get started on the piece of software, right? Yeah, some people. Uh... So I agree with a lot of the things you said. I definitely agree it's a skill. Mm. And I think, yeah, people do get frustrated and they kind of think, well, hang on a minute, you know, am I not just paying you to... You'll be... I mean, sometimes it's just you that ends up doing this. Like, yeah, I'll, you're doing everything, right? Yeah, you're doing yeah. BA, functionalist and being the developer. I think actually, I think in general, less... It depends maybe on the size of the project and its difficulty, but 
there's definitely something to be said for having as few layers as you can get away with. That's probably just a rule for life, though. Yeah. Like people, human to human interaction is like complicated and goes wrong. Middle management is, you know, the is the stereotype, right? Where you've yeah. just got lots of people in the way of you doing anything, which so is bad. Sometimes like it will be me, you know, I'm freelancing on a project and I will speak to the business person and have a conversation about what it is they want to do, not in terms of tech. And then I'll just go away and translate that into... I'm going to build five APIs on this website and whatever. And I just do it all myself. That can have problems because it you start thinking technically too early. Yeah, you're that, not, that's a big problem. Yeah. yeah, you're not really listening to what they're saying and thinking about the problems. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's tough. But I think <clears throat> I think part of the problem, or I find part of the problem, is that the it's difficult on the business side, the person that you're delivering delivering the software to, to necessarily... Well, A, they might not know really what they want. Yes. And then when you're trying to check, you know, because at the end of the... Part of the... One of the reasons for having requirements is that when you deliver your software is to be able to check off, does the software do all of the things they ask for? Yeah. And if they give you a very vague, high-level thing, it's impossible to ever say that this software does that thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so... But then they might not necessarily appreciate what's involved in delivering um, a piece of software that does, you know, whatever it is. We, we should probably come up with an example. But and so I think it's it's part of that conversation is to be able to. It's almost like a, it's almost like an interview, right? You're going in being like, so what do you want? And trying mm-hmm. to ask sort of open ended questions to just see, you know, try and get out of them what they're thinking even because i think if you ask them direct questions they wouldn't necessarily know the answers but you've got to sort of yeah do that sort of it's almost like a chat and a yeah it's an exploration isn't it Mm. it's it's interesting though because i think these people like the technical term is like stakeholder Mm. is that is what people often call it but like the person who wants the project delivered and is often paying money for it or in some or in somewhere or another up the chain is paying money for it they want it to go smoothly and they want it to do whatever it is that they want it to do but normally because it's good for a business if you're working for like some for-profit and so they should probably be the first people to realize that like if they get the requirements right that's going to be good for them yeah but yeah it's quite rare that they are really on this which is really strange and i've had running my own agency where we built software for sort of smallish companies and some of which were small startups and a lot of potential customers that hadn't really built software before. Oh boy, have I seen, I, I've i seen things where it's like, I want an app which is sort of like Airbnb, but for this, how long will that take? And you're like, what? <laughs> I don't know. No one could know. Like, how long is that going to take? And I'll see... But then on the other side, sometimes I'll see, you know, they've got 30 screens of designs and designs. I'm actually not particularly a stickler on the form of the requirements that much. I actually think that you can go too far. And I've worked in scenarios, you know, if you ever get to a point where there's a document with headings with where the headings are numbered and then you're like in section 5.3, and you're thinking, I feel like... That's too far. It's gone too far, yeah. I kind of like something in the middle where it's just like common sense. And designs are a pretty good tool for that if you're building a UI. Yeah. And I think APIs, if you're building an API saying, you know, I want a post HTTP request and when you pass these things, it should return that. I'm actually really keen on on examples for requirements. 
So being able to... Yeah, see, particularly for an API, like you said there, right? To be like, I want to be able to give you these things and I want this back out. Yeah. And, and UIs, to be honest, like, I, you know, if you've got the same screen and it can look four different ways in four different scenarios, the so ideal thing for me is, yeah, just have all four and be like, look, if there's an error, this is what that looks like. And but the problem is that can get expensive depending on the number of permutations in the software. Yeah. Like if, if there's 30 different error cases and someone's designing 30 screens to show you what they all look like. But then again, if that is a genuine requirement, it's probably better that someone draws those out or at least starts drawing them out and then thinks, gosh, this is complicated. This is probably going to take ages. Or, or they, at that point of design, you're seeing that there could be potential problems with what they're trying to ask for, right? Because yeah. they're saying, well, we want to do this thing. Like, okay, but then there are these 30 different errors that you might have to deal with. Yeah. And the business might go, well, that, why is that? And you know, well, that's just the way, Yeah. you know, some other part of the system works. We can't get around that. So they go, oh, okay, well, maybe we don't need that then. Maybe we should do it a different way. Yeah. Um, something I wanted to say was uh, Mrs. Jass works as a, a UX designer and she finds, I think, a, I think she would relate to a lot of what we're saying here based on what she said to me before, where she is going to the business almost as a BA, although there is a separate role, but she's basically saying, well, what, what you know, you've got, you, you want to, you have these requirements. How do you want this? You, how do you want this to look? Um, or how do you want it to work? So then she can go away and think about how best to lay things out and display things. And it, what she finds is that during her design life cycle, they go through a lot of this, what if, or it doesn't look right, or this isn't the way I want it to work. and what she ends up doing, particularly when she's at a big place like she is at the moment, she'll be like, well, these are the limitations we have. So this is this is the best we can do uh, this way. And they'll be like, well, it's not acceptable for them. And they go, well, at that point, you know, from where we are designing this piece of, uh, of UX, this is as far as we can go. And it's up to the business then to escalate to the right people to get the other things done. But it's that sort of discovery phase of yeah. um, we want it to do X. Okay, can we do that? Yeah. In a small company, I guess, like in a lot, a few of the places you've worked, I imagine it's just well, we don't have anything, so we can just we can build it as long as we can get hold of the data. But in bigger places with more legacy software, there are going to be a lot more limitations that the business won't be aware of necessarily, yeah, because they now want to do something in a different way, yeah. And it's only at the point where you're trying to get those requirements and maybe do some wireframes to be like, this is how it's going to look that you, that the business realise or are made aware that what they want isn't that easy, yeah. I think as a UX, so UX stands for user experience, which is the best acronym ever since experience doesn't actually start with an X, but, <laughs> but there you go. But yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a UI designer, but it's not focused on the design. It's more sort of focused workflow. On, yeah, workflow. So what, so it's normally to do with UIs, but it will be like, what screens are there? Where do things go? And they're thinking about, does everything make sense? So it's kind of got like a, almost a psychological element to yes. it, sort of thinking about how users will interpret things, whether they'll get confused. And it's quite a new field and still massively undervalued, in my opinion. Mm. So I think, yeah. And, that, and to be honest, I think most UX people, unless they work at a company where there's really strict division of labor, like maybe somewhere like Apple, where, they, where they're really on this stuff, I'd imagine, or Netflix, you might actually get to do pure UX if you went there. Mm. But... I'd imagine in most places you end up doing a bit of business analysis like BA, yeah. talking to people, gathering requirements, and you just kind of get, you'll end up being in charge of like all of that stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, it just kind of escalates. Yeah. So, I mean, that's another interesting side to it uh, in terms of getting or trying to work out what's actually technically feasible. Yeah. Because it's easy, you know, it's it, 
it could, you could argue it's easy to say, well, this is our list of requirements, but then you've actually somebody's got to go through and actually validate that's possible. those are possible. Yeah, so the developer definitely needs to be involved with gathering the requirements. You can't just do it in a vacuum and not have a not have a like the developer shouldn't necessarily be present when you're doing it but once you've come up with something you want to show it to a developer or like you're the lead developer who will say ah because often it will be sometimes it's not just like that's impossible it's like that can be done but if you make this slight concession it might be a quarter of the time or something like that so you can take shortcuts and they'll sometimes they'll say no that's a deal breaker and sometimes they'll say yeah don't really care about that thing and you've just saved a quarter of the time yeah so i think and it, yeah, it's. I think a lot of what the reason why requirements are important for me is that development is still very slow. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's a general. It's faster than it's ever been, but still painfully slow. And the amount of software a senior developer, like if you're paying a developer, I mean, like a senior developer, let's say that that costs a hundred thousand dollars a year. It might be more, might be less, depending on where you are in the world. But it's. It's quite a decent chunk of money. Mm. You know, if you've got a few of those, you're getting towards kind of like half a million dollars a year. And then you think about how much software can a senior developer produce in a year. It's not that much, actually, really. Like, can you build four apps and release them to the app store in a year? No, probably not. Most developers, if if you really get down to brass tacks, not, you know, you could easily have a developer build an app and work on it all year and it's still not really be finished. So it's kind of... I think there it would depend on the environment they're in, right? Yeah, yeah. So a small startup, I guess if you you know if you somehow were suddenly well funded but were starting from the beginning, you can go quicker. You might be like, well, we've got nothing, and we can. But again, that comes back to we spoke about before, right? MVPs and yeah, and t- making sacrifices there to keep that that um, deployment time as, as short as possible. But, yeah, uh, in, a, in a big organization, yeah, it's even worse. Yeah, you're not get you know you you've got those layers of bureaucracy I'm, i was actually thinking in a pretty optimal scenario so i was thinking like a kind of startup greenfield mm. it's still quite slow yeah and that's the reason for the saying which i don't know if, if someone else has said it but the best the best line of code is the line of code not written yeah which yeah. is still very much true because as soon as you write one of those lines of code you things start going wrong you've got to support it it's yeah. just a nightmare and and as a related point is is simple code as well right yeah yeah it's the number of times you see some overly complicated code and you're like well yeah okay it might it might save you whatever there's some benefit for doing it but let's just keep it simple stupid and then we'll at the point where it becomes an issue then we optimize yeah to the nth degree but let's just the simpler it is fewer lines of code easier to understand easy to maintain yeah it's going to get you yeah going to keep you productive yeah software is a less is more game for sure but with definitely with the requirements stuff it's kind of a case of if you have good requirements then the developers are going to waste less time the, the way i think about it is it if you're going to iterate so that you ask the developers to build a thing and then they go and build that if you call that a and then you're going to look at that and say oh that wasn't quite what i wanted mm. and then they're going to build some more stuff to make the customer happy and that's b if you can get it more you're never going to get it perfectly right and it depends on the type of product so for example when they were building like instagram or twitter they didn't really know what people wanted so Mm. there's an element of feedback of like we'll build a thing and then we'll see how everyone reacts and it's not like you say well they actually iterated on it 30 times so they did a bad job of the requirements it's kind of like 
they were doing lots of experiments, getting feedback. But in a lot of enterprise scenarios, that's totally not the case. No. It's kind of like... They know exactly what they want. Yeah, yeah, someone somewhere pretty much knows what they want. Yeah. And that there may be a few unknowns that, that once you... There's a human element of like, once something's in front of you, you think, oh, and you actually have to use it. It's hard to like model the real world in your mind 100% so you go, I definitely know what I want. And I don't... Yeah, and, and having known everything about... The problem, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, you can't... You can never be in that position. And you can't blame people for like occasionally making a few mistakes but i see a lot of scenarios where it's not that it's like they just didn't think about like really common things so like the kind of thing i'll see is i'll have a client come to me and they'll want a consumer facing app and i'll say you know there'll be the customer at some point will make an order and i'll say what if the payment fails or what if they can't can you know can they cancel it later and they'll go oh yeah i guess yeah they could cancel it later and then you're like well that's going to add quite a considerable amount of time to the thing we were building because now we've got all these different error states that an order can go through or something. And we've got to refund and all that stuff. And Yeah, it's, yeah, ref, yeah refunds. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you've opened this big can of worms. And it's made, sometimes it's it needs to be done. But yeah, I think a lot of the reason that I got really into this is because I started doing more work. I, I spent the first six or nine, like the first two thirds of my career doing where either by being employed permanently or on a contract, I was paid per hour of my time. Mm. And then it switched to people sometimes asking me, could you build this project for us? And we've got, you know, $20,000 or something. Can you build this thing? And then you have to, the requirements become a lot more important when you're going to put your money where your mouth is. If somebody has crappy requirements and they're going to pay you by the hour sometimes you know you're like man these requirements aren't very good and you can say to them they're not very good mm. and they'll go yeah yeah no no they're fine you know what else do you need blah blah all the stuff you hear yeah and then you're like well you know it's your funeral off we go and then it takes triple what they were thinking but with fixed cost it's like i need to commit to a price to deliver this thing yeah and it's really dangerous for your business if you get that wrong and it's it got to a point where I just wouldn't do it anymore. Yeah. It's that hard. It's so hard. Yeah. yeah, because you end up with like the goalposts moving. Because actually what a business person has in mind is like success. So often it will be like, I've launched my app and customers are using it and they're not complaining loads. That will be actually their mental milestone. Yeah. But then they'll tra- then they'll write requirements for the app. And the requirements they've written, you could deliver them 100%, but they won't satisfy that original statement of like, all my users are you know, saying this is really good. So then you end up in these, you know, weird scenarios where they're kind of unhappy with the work you've done, even though you've done exactly what you said well, you would do. So in that example there, what what would they be unhappy about? Is it that it wasn't, it just wasn't what they pictured, like it's, almost the way it looks or? It's kind of like, it. maybe it's easier with the enterprise. It will be exactly what they said, but it's like. But that's not what they wanted. That's not what they wanted. Yeah. yeah. They what they want what people usually want is an outcome. So they'll be like, you know, in a big company it'll be like, I want my operations team to be able to handle support queries on their own or something. Mm. And they'll define some software that they think does do that. that. Yeah. You implement it with a hundred percent of what they said, but it actually turns out that it doesn't do that. Yeah. And they don't give to you know, if they don't care if it's if it's what they asked for, they they I mean they they might if they're a good customer, depending and especially internally in companies, people just accept it that they've maybe they don't realise that it was their fault. But when you when it's money and you're handing over money and someone someone said, Oh, it's twenty thousand, you know, you've told someone it's twenty thousand dollars to build this thing, 
and it doesn't solve the problem that they yeah. were paying the $20,000 for, then you get a lot of friction. And it's so actually an issue. I guess an issue there then is not the lack of requirements, but it's it's um, receiving a, a set of requirements that are haven't been sort of validated. Yes. Or another thing that can happen is the requirements are unclear, so you don't know when you're finished, which is ridiculously yeah. dangerous if you're exchanging money. Yeah, because it feels like there that in that previous example, somebody's gone. Oh, I want to do this thing. I want you know. I want my customers to be happy using my product. They've then them as a non-technical person perhaps have tra- tried to translate those into functional requirements that you can do. Yeah. But in that translation, they've then lost some information. Yes. And I suppose that's then why, coming back to my earlier discussion, why you're trying to have people who specialize in doing that translation, which yes. is requ- um, business outcome to requirement. Yeah. And I suppose if you, but obviously in a small company, it's, you know, a guy who's just founded his own company, he's on his own or you know, yeah. a couple of other people, that's not going to happen. So they're then trying to, with no experience, do that translation and failing, I assume, is, is what's Yeah, ba- basically. Mm. And also, it will end up costing them more because even if you're doing it on a day rate and they yeah. get their requirements wrong, like I said before, you'll do the first iteration, which is A, then you tweak it because they got it wrong, which is B, but you may be changing things you already did. Yeah. So it's not like if the total effort should have been 100 days, if you do that over three iterations because the requirements were naff, it might take like... 120 140 yeah. the problem is as well cha- changing things and rewriting things can be really expensive and developer time is like really expensive a hundred thousand dollars over you know however many working days there are in a year it's a lot of dollars a day so even one day is often hundreds and hundreds of dollars so it's kind of like if you can shave off a week that's a big i mean basically in software there's really only money there's like and time to market yeah money time I mean, there's a few. Other, what's the Iron Triangle? What's the other thing? I've forgotten. I don't know. I don't. I haven't heard the phrase the Iron Triangle. It's like the three things in software that if you take, if you take it oh, from one, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Like, take well, quality one. is the other one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Quality it can be, it can be, it can be quick and accurate, but not be well written. And yeah, it's like those three sentences. Isn't it? Money and time, in most scenarios, in my experience, are basically kind of the same thing. Uh, not always. Not always. Not be- for the. Not for the business. They're not right. If you're talking about single developer, so if you think of the problem as being almost single-threaded, you've got a single developer working on a project, then money and time are pretty much proportional in that scenario. If you've got two developers working simultaneously, then money and time... Well, if you can add more developers, then money and time can become decoupled. It's a different problem, though, then, isn't it? Yeah. Well, then you get into other other problems. So it sounds like to me, then, that the potential issue i'm trying to think how i did this in the startup but for me the the overriding solution to this is having very very short um life cycles between yeah somebody saying uh, let's solve this problem and then trying to show them something that even is on the way to solving that problem and then you can quickly divert and change course less is definitely more yeah yeah i completely agree yeah so i guess the thing i would you know if you've just if you're just given a set of requirements mm that actually sounds worse than saying, well, I don't have any. Because at least then you can be like, right, well, first thing we need to do is people need to register mm-hmm. or something. And then you can be like, well, let's build the registration screen. You know, you can do it that way maybe, rather than just saying, you know, I want an app that does all of these things. Do it bit by bit. Yeah. And then having, <clears throat> I mean, it's 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 the agile versus waterfall design yeah. model to some degree. Yeah. Uh, and, and in a very small organization, you know, if you're sat, you know, hopefully you're sat, 
close either with the if it's something like a founder you can have that quick cycle like when it was me and <clears throat> uh the boss of my startup we obviously were in the same office we sat together so you could see you know if you had any questions about it, it wouldn't be an email to a ba to somebody yeah. else yeah. about what's this prop you know what do you think about this it would just be you know coming over the hood of my shoulder this is what i'm thinking does that work yeah um and, and it to be fair the most efficient i've ever felt was in that startup yeah uh where we would say we would have a discussion and about the next the next feature that we wanted to work on we'd start working on it straight away and having that feedback loop the entire time which <clears throat> it feels good i actually think it feels rewarding to do it that way you don't feel like you're saying wasting effort having to ditch a load of stuff you you know you could have spent a week working on a piece of functionality that you're like i'm really proud of this now and it, you know it works really well i mean realistically in real life to put something into production a week is like no time at all a week's like nothing like, no, no, I was thinking just in terms of, you know, building... Oh, yeah. You know, you're building a piece of functionality to say, look, this is how I think we solve requirement A. You spend your week, yeah. you show them on the Monday, they go, that's completely wrong or not right. You've got to start again. A small <clears throat> requirements problem can easily blow out a week, possibly a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. You see what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, because the the description of the requirement can be simple, but the implementation could be very, very difficult. The frustrating thing about requirements and programming in general is that... Yeah, that one sentence. Yeah. Sometimes you'll talk to people, like we can talk about some, we could probably just like quickly talk about the requirements for a system that would take like three years to build. It's crazy in like a paragraph. Like it. I mean, have I, have I told, I can't remember if I, I'm, well, I've definitely told you this before, but I can't remember if I mentioned it on the podcast or not. Apologies if I have, but there's that uh, sketch or, or little comic strip where it's like, <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I, the, business person comes to the, the application developer and is like, right, I want a, an application um, to be able to take pictures um, of, you know, when you're in the zoo or something, I want to be able to take pictures. You go, yeah, fine, no problem, I can do that. They're like, oh, it would also be really good if you could just remember, um, you know, where you took that picture, just, you know, get the GPS coordinates and just save that with the picture. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no problem, another week or whatever. And then he goes, and then finally, I'd like to just be, you'd be able to tell me what animal is in that picture that you've taken. <laughs> and then you're like, well, that's like a three-year PhD. <laughs> that's quite hard, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? So it's like, but to the to the, per, the business person, they're like, well, you know, you, you could tell me exactly where in yeah. the world you are, but why can't you tell me yeah, yeah. what the animal is? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. GPS is pretty immense, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, like it's, but that's like really easy. I mean, arguably that last one has sort of been solved, but yeah, like it totally... Well, yeah, yeah. I, uh, this is an old, it was quite an old, uh, an old um, comic, but yeah, now you'd be less yeah. worried. But still... Of those three things, right, the one that would scare you the most would be that third one, right? If you're truly non-technical, it's hard to correlate between uh, like a thing you're asking for and how how long that might take technically. Like if you say, I want you to write a program that can beat a grandmaster at chess, maybe most people go, that sounds quite hard. But they're like, yeah, is is that picture a monkey? A five-year-old can tell you that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, it's not exactly a grandmaster in chess. But, you know, 10 years ago, that would have basically been impossible. Maybe now it's more doable, but it's kind of... Yeah, I guess it's that thing of, as a non-technical person, you're thinking about solving requirements the way... Like, you things you think might be easy to solve, you're thinking from a human point of view, right? Like, in that yeah. example there, you're saying, well, you know, it's really easy to tell what each object is as a human. Yeah. <laughs> but then mapping it to, well, how do you program that? That's obviously a problem that isn't actually yet solved. But if you're non-technical... 
I mean, what else do you have as a baseline? Like you. Oh no! You, I, yeah, yeah. Like, I completely agree. And maybe like people that are slightly more technical but not programmers, they might be a bit of a dab hand in Excel. But then th- some things that are really hard in Excel are really easy, really easy in programming. I mean, in general, programming does make reasonably light work to most Excel things. Yeah. But yeah, like some things that are really difficult in Excel are not that difficult in programming at all. Well, uh, it's a, a th- for that specific example, I always think back to your story that you had when you worked as an intern, where you, I think the team you were working on was a core team and they were trying to replicate a pivot table feature for .NET. To yeah, SQL. M- uh, Go on. You yeah, can yeah. So about they it. wanted to write um, like a query language which was similar to SQL, but in C Sharp mm-hmm. using the, for those of you that are familiar with C Sharp, using sort of like a link-like, so like a fluid API where you could say like dot .select dot .where. They wanted something to do with that. Oh, and they wanted users to be able to do it. That was it. Yeah. yeah. In, a, in a UI. Yeah. So it'd be basically like a pivot table. Yeah. And from what I remember you saying, that was a very, very, very difficult task. Yeah, that was hard. But the users are like, but Excel can do it. Yeah. And they, <laughs> they're kind of like, yeah, they kind of wanted, they were like semi-technical users and they wanted like traders and people to be able to write kind of like queries in C Sharp in the middle of the application on a desktop. But yeah, like that's doesn't sound that hard, but then it gets like really difficult. Yeah. And that's one I think that you can even be, like you say, slightly technical, understand Excel to a low level and be like, well, let's just have this functionality in, yeah. in our app. And you're like, well, actually. it's it's Yeah, it is pretty mad. I think the longer I've gone on programming, the more I've come to realize that requirements are actually right at the core of what programming is. And like you said, if you have, or if you have BAs or business people that understand requirements, that's very valuable. Or they, or maybe they understand the requirements, but they also have a better understanding than average of technology. What might be easy or hard or impossible. Or, yeah. And a lot of a lot of programmers that you see go into project management. The reason that they're good at that is because they might not be able to write much code anymore, but they still have that sense of like, my first boss at work was very good at that. He, he didn't really code much at that. I've, I've heard he's gone back now. I had a beer with him. He told me he's gone back. I don't know how true that is, if he's, <laughs> if he's listening, but hopefully it's true. Seen the light. Seen the light. He's, he's got, he went into the darkness and then came back out. But he was very effective because he may not have been able to write all the lines of code as quickly as some of the people that work for him, but he could look at something and go, uh-uh, the way that this system's engineered that's going to be really difficult or that's just a really hard problem in general like with the state of the art of the technology we have in whatever year we're in so and then for programmers i think it's also true so it's true for like people that understand the requirements but programmers that can understand what the problem that their customer so that might be like what the business wants but it may be if you're working you know for like a charity or it's like it's like what outcome does someone want to happen yeah and i think um if you're in that bigger organization the developer who sat there looking at these requirements hasn't has highly likely not had that conversation with the business so they don't necessarily see the big picture of what yeah. they're trying to solve right so you go i'm developing this requirement i'm like i have no context like why oh, yeah why and, am i doing this what is this going to help and that's achieve? why a bullet pointed or like a numbered list of requirements you might get a 30 page word document they, they might have spent months on the requirements but if the developer does not have that context the, the reality is the requirements will never cover everything. And so you get to make, as a programmer, you get to make decisions. Yeah. Little decisions. And you, you're thinking, oh, I'm doing this for like, you know, Dave in accounting. 
and this edge case has come up and if you've had a bunch of conversations you'll think well i know how that works and how they do that so i'll probably just do this and that'll probably be fine and you may ask dave or you may just make a decision on his behalf yeah. but if you've just been given a document you could go miles down the wrong route and yeah, then you yeah. and then you show it to them and they're like that is never going to work because it's like that's just completely wrong and again that that's part of that developer knowing the the end user mm. so in that example there right if you've spoken to to Dave in accounting, yeah. he knows who you are. It's a lot easier just to fire off an email and say, "Look, oh Dave, you know, we, you know, if this number's minus one, what do you want me to do?" Yeah, I think we should do this. Yeah, and he'll either be like, "Yeah," or he'll be like, "No, let's do that." And then you've you've learned something else about the system directly from the person who's going to use it, yeah. and you've you're gaining that knowledge all the time by communicating directly with the business person that wants this thing. Yeah, that you're going to never get indirectly through somebody else because they're that information is going to be lost in tra- lost in in being passed down right it's like a it's like a udp connection from the business to you <laughs> lossy it's lossy yeah i think the one thing i should say is that you and i come with quite a particular because not only are we are we programmers and possibly programmers we're also we're not that again not that again we're a particular type of programmer I think even though we're diff- we have our differences, you like lower level than me, mm. we are both what I would call application developers. So we tend to build software for maybe technical people, but often non-technical people that want an outcome. We don't, for example, work on the Linux kernel, mm. which does have requirements, but their requirements must be coming more from technical people like us being like or maybe even more technical people than us that they're like two levels below yeah. <laughs> below us yeah they're low yeah they're okay. really low down like in the kind of like like the levels of abstraction but you know like or, uh, what's the difference there then well it, it, i guess the ability to like talk to people and understand business stuff is perhaps the the t- types of domains we work in are often non-technical domains so yes. it will be yes. like for you, it'll often be finance with the stuff you're working now and data capture, and you need to understand, you know, market data and yeah. where it's coming from for exchanges in the financial markets. And for me, it will be like, oh, I want this app and I want my customers to be able to like pay money. And yeah. so I've got to kind of like think about those sorts of things. But for them, it's more like other developers. And then maybe these skills are slightly like the requirements side of things is still, it's probably important wherever you are, but maybe the domain might still be technical if you're working on a thing where your customer is also technical which might mean because i think to be honest with you where we've done well i'm hoping we've done okay in our careers i think you've done well in your career and we'll 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 figure (laughs) out how you decided that (laughs) well it's easier to see with someone else but i think the thing that that makes it's easier if i talk about you but the thing that makes you a good developer is that you're good at this stuff and I would say, like the saying I would normally use is like a, de- it's a developer without the socks and sandals, because in order to, in order to, <laughs> in order to do this well, you need to be able to go out and talk to people and have like a normal conversation with them, yeah. which is almost just based entirely on common sense. Mm. And you need to be able to. T- What's super interesting about this is that when I taught people to program, they start off and they know nothing, nothing. So you could blind them with science by saying, you know. Like I'm going to call a function and they'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and you could draw out some code and they'd be like, that's just like a foreign language to me. And then three months later or, or six months later, they gain a level of technical competency 
and they've forgotten themselves from six months ago that doesn't understand anything, they'll start talking to users and they're like blinding them with coding science. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, six months ago, you you didn't know what any of this meant. Yeah. And now you seem to have lost like all empathy for this other person who also doesn't know what any of this means. And of course they don't because you didn't. Yeah. But it's, I think what, what both of us have, have a bit of a knack for is like we have to some degree not forgotten. And I think that empathy with other people... Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. It helps. It yeah. really helps because otherwise... And there, are, I've met a lot of developers who are really good. They can, like, crunch it out, but they couldn't go and speak to Dave from accounting and yeah. really understand their problems. And I think... And that is something I think we're very... I, I would, you know, obviously <laughs> biased here because we're talking about each other. But, yeah, I agree that, you know, if, I, if I'm imagining that we're in a team of, say, 10, and I was like, right, somebody here needs to go and talk to Dave from accounting to understand the lowdown. Yeah, I mean, I would... Someone like yourself... Yeah, because I know that you're going to have a co- you know you're going to have a, a conversation with him where you understand that he's non-technical. Yes, and, and appreciate that rather than sort of you know I I definitely have I have um, had uh, managers that have struggled with that. They get frustrated or ang- you know not not angry but get frustrated or denigrate that that person or the BA equivalent because they're not technical enough. Yeah, without necessarily taking a step back and understanding that they can't really know that much about it because they might it's not there yeah they're not technical i mean they might and then you know there's then whether they they don't know enough technically but they know a lot about the actual application yeah which normally these people yeah but it's even then it's still yeah that's a very good point i hadn't really thought of it like that um it was yeah not getting frustrated with people not understanding what you're you know what you're working in perhaps And trying to help them understand better is and, part of it as well. And knowing what they don't know. Mm. And I wouldn't say I'm high up on the empathy list. Like empathy's not high up on my qualities, but I always think of um I always think of my mother, actually. Yeah. It's my tactic. I just think with my mum, would she just be because you know, obviously she's not a programmer. Uh she, she if I if I talk about what I work on to her with her, she won't. She won't have a clue what I'm talking about, and I and I often just use that to think if I'm speaking to Dave from accounting, what does he know? Mm. And it's what's really hard is when you interact with a new person, trying to figure out where they're at because you will have some yeah. people who are a little bit technical, or like you say, they they've worked with that system, especially in my first job. They've used the system that you're working on for five years, and they know the ins and outs of the functionality better than you do because yeah. they sit there clicking on it every day, yeah. and you've only worked on a few parts. And when you chat to them, you're kind of like, oh, they actually do know a lot of stuff, but they, they don't know some things. And it's like building a mental model of the other person. But it's hard when you're starting because then you're like, do I go in and treat them like an idiot? Like, yeah. that's bad. You don't want to treat them like an idiot. So you have to kind of, but you also have to assume that it's safer to err on the side that they don't know. Yeah, and then just be pleasantly surprised. If they do yeah. know, but then not patronise them or make them feel like an idiot. Yeah. And, and it's a real skill to like another good example of that is i found is when um the business people say it's a generally in finance there's a lot of uh, equations that are solving these problems or providing the answers that they're interested in they obviously know the mathematical equation and how oh, to yeah. work this out like the back of their hand like middle office or something they're like yeah, yeah you calculate exposure like this bang and i'm like okay so I think I have that function over here, <laughs> but you know I don't actually because I'm, not, I'm, sure. not, I'm not I'm not no. you know obviously I up to the point I can write the code to translate it, but I'm like well I'm not the one really to validate that because I don't have that. It's that sort of bridging again where particularly in finance and um, mathematical 
equations like that, you get the business and the technology there are very, very close because yeah. they've defined exactly the function they want or the equation yeah, they want. Yeah. And you're just basically trying to implement that and not screw it up. Yeah. Um, so that's an, another example, I think, where you've got somebody who isn't very technical but knows a lot more about what you're doing than you do to some degree. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. that was just another that, aside. That I would call the, the word I use, I think it is the standard word, but I heard someone horribly misuse it recently which which made me doubt whether i know what it means but the word i use is domain which yeah. is like domain knowledge yeah or domain knowledge are like the net which i think of I, there's lots of like formal stuff but i'm not that way minded but it's like the nouns and verbs that you use to describe like the problem space so in finance it might be like those formulas and the nouns might be trades and yeah, or like yeah. some sort of like prices and market data and that sort Buying, of Buying, selling of verbs, those yeah, sort of things, right? What's interesting with finance, which in London, I mean, we have harped on about this quite a lot. I think it's the same in New York as well, for those of you who are US-based, but most developers in London that are at the top end of the pay bracket tend to work in financial services mm. stuff. And it's interesting when you were saying that, I realised that part of the problem there is if you're working on like an Instagram app, clone or whatever or reddit as a developer you can almost fully understand the domain but with a lot of finance things you actually get into a territory where learning the domain is quite a big barrier to entry for you as a developer so you actually end up with problems on both sides like the 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 customer might not understand all the tech stuff which is quite common yeah and then you don't understand all of their stuff so then you've got to somehow meet in the middle where they, they somehow teach you that's much harder because they can get away without understanding your stuff but you to some degree Need to know it. You need to know their yeah. stuff because you can't, like in your example, if they have a function that does a thing or they, they have a mathematical formula that does a thing and they want your code to do it, you can't just like skim over, oh, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, like you can't like approximate that. It needs yeah. to do it. Yeah, so you yeah. need to at least understand for 20 minutes yeah, <laughs> how that yeah, works yeah. and then you can forget it again once you've written your function. But yeah, it's... Well, one thing I did want to, just a related uh, point to your saying about your the guys you trained up losing that empathy yeah. and being a different person. They, they sometimes get it back again. Oh, okay. But yeah, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, I, 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 I'm listening to Hello Internet, but very, very old episodes. And um, they were talking about, uh, CGB Grey had written a article about um, you not being the same person you were in the past. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I do remember. Yeah, and I, it just made me think of that, where you're, you know, you, you sort of assume that you, you know, you've been the same person you're, from yeah. now backwards, you assume you've always been the same, but actually, no. you've you've changed a lot, and that would be an example there, right? Where they've they can't they've lost they didn't realise that they didn't you know they've all temporarily forgotten that they didn't know anything, yeah. and, and they felt frustrated about watching you, and then it's sort of followed on. It's and the- weird. It's really weird to watch people do that thing, though. I think it, <laughs> I I give them I gave them a suitably hard time about it. Yeah, because it's like, dude. Three months ago, you knew... I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. And, and the thing is, as well, it's not like an isolated case. I'd say it affected... At least I saw it qu- quite clear cases in, in in nearly everybody that I taught. Mm. Like, some are, some are better than others, that's it, for sure. It seems to be a... seems to be a person-by-person person thing. And I don't think it's just related to software i think it can be you know like you said like when, when you're trade when you're talking to a finance person in the middle office and they're telling you about some mathematical formula well perhaps if they're talking depending on who they're talking to they should understand that that person won't have a clue what the hell they're going yeah. on about because financial markets are quite a complicated thing to understand in the first place yeah and that's why it's so hard to understand the technology because the the vastness of knowledge that it takes to become a programmer especially now but 
we have so much, there's so much prerequisite knowledge before you can even have a sensible conversation. Mm. And when I was teaching people to code, most of it was just cramming in. Like you just sort of need to know that all these things exist. You need to understand that this this thing called HTTP and that there are APIs that often look like this. And it's not even everything that like you or I would know, but you can't have a sensible conversation with someone until they kind of have the prerequisites covered. That base, that base level, right? And that base is daunting. Yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah, I haven't. The last two places I've worked at have been situations where. I haven't had to deal with those sort of formal requirements. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't remember the horror so much because it's not been as recent. Like I say, in my startup, it was that very, very quick cycle of requirement. Quite informal, I'm guessing. Yeah, very informal. Yeah, it was just a conversation, and you know, we were we were using Jira to just track the things that we wanted to do. Yeah. You know, nothing more than that. The current place, different problems, but it was it, it was me doing the majority of the BA talking to the business. Like I actually sit next to the business now because it was just, it's just easier to have that conversation right there and then with them. Um, Is that why you get paid the big bucks? Big dollar. (laughs) Big dollar. Because, because they, they'll struggle to hire someone with your technical ability that can also do that. Yeah. But you know, they're they're rare. I think. But yeah, yeah, but that's an interesting point though. Um, When I, this is an FX related so foreign exchange related business but actually going into this this i actually i didn't know anything about foreign exchange oh, yeah yeah because of before previous in in financial space i'd done a lot of equities mm-hmm. um but they obviously just you know i think once you know some of it there's a lot, a lot of it transfers over yeah. you know you know what the data looks like you've seen you know order books and things like that before so a lot of it translates there's other bits that <clears throat> i've obviously had to learn to, for the domain specific specifically um and that takes time but um it's it's still in that situation where i was asking the business and me were having are having direct conversation with what they want and me trying to translate that into something i can actually sit down and develop um that's a very the thing is with this that i really want to hammer home on is you sitting down and figuring out what like translating it mm-hmm. is an extremely like leveraged task if you get that if you nail that you'll probably shave a lot of time and therefore money off of how long it takes you to build the thing. Mm. And if you get it wrong, they'll either, you won't have satisfied the thing that they wanted, which is bad because basically you've just not succeeded or it will take you a lot longer because you, or you'll have to go through multiple iterations when they go, that wasn't what we wanted. Mm. And so that's why I think it deserves, I feel like a bit of a hypocrite because I'm like, it deserves a lot of care and attention because you can save a lot of developer time because and developer time like programming's quite a slow activity. Yeah. Maybe some people will disagree with me on that, but I really do think it is. If I asked you to like, you know, like Excel is compared for all its sins. And, uh, you know, obviously most programmers sort of have to hate Excel in a way, but (laughs) but like it's quite efficient in terms of like, you think I want to do this and then you sit and do it in Excel and it's normally done quite quickly, but programming quite often, you know, how many days are you, Sometimes you do something in code and it's knocked out in like half a day. So you start the day and you maybe get two things done. But how many times is it like, you know, day four of basically building the same mm. feature, even if you're really good or you work in a really inf- efficient environment? So I think... Sh- but you see, yeah, so that that's for me where I feel that having that being in charge of the platform that I work on is I've developed the environment to make it efficient to make those sort of changes. Yes. I thought about... F- efficiency as a primary driver to the design of the application because 
I think without that, I've worked before in places where the system hasn't really been designed to that level. It's just been sort of built up basically as and when requirements have come in. Ad hoc. Ad hoc. It needs to do this. Yeah. So you, so you're. It sounds like you're thinking about you're understanding their overall sort of profile of what it is their job is, what sorts of things they might want to do. And then you're thinking about future probabilities mm. of requirements that might be sensible for them to ask for. And then you're factoring that into when Trying you're writing to, yeah. the software. And if, I would, I would, what I would say to that, though, is because I'm using KDB, that um, space of potential is reduced. Like, I think if you said, like, to do it with, like, Java, you could do, there's absolutely anything you could do. Yeah, with Java. yeah. I think with KDB, there's a narrower set of stuff that you're going to see be, want to ever be done. Yeah. So, I feel like I know, you know, 90% of what that list would be. So I can factor those and that stuff that I'm aware of into my design. Yeah. Um, that's a benefit of using sort of a, a niche technology to that degree. It's very good at doing certain things. And at any point where somebody was like, oh, I want to do this other thing, like string processing or something like that, um, I would be like, well, KDB isn't the right language for that. So really? let's yeah. let's solve that some in a different way. Out. Whereas mm. if you're building a Java platform, yeah, someone's like, well, now let's add string processing. You're like, well, yeah, we can do. We can stick it over here. But yeah, that's you know, true. That that's I, I'm going to prefix that because the technology that I'm using helps with that um, design process. Yeah, because you because you're basically cutting down the problem space of what that yes. module of software might have to solve. Yeah, because exactly. it just gets it can get silly for certain things. I think you can still do it quite effectively though if you are just using a general purpose programming language because you you speak to them and they'll talk about aspirations they have in the future. They'll mm. say, oh, one day it'll be really cool. Yeah. You know, like we worked on a project that was like um, people, it's an app where you can get your car washed and someone comes and they wash your car. So it's like a gig economy, delivery, Uber style kind yeah. of app. And a really obvious, there are maybe a list of 10 features that I know that the founder wants one day so when you're building it you know i know he wants to make his matching engine much better or he wants to you know send money directly to the washers in real time when the transactions happen there's like all these things that we weren't able to do with the time we had to build the first version but as you're building it you're thinking oh he might want that yeah how can i build this so that it's easily extendable extendable yeah but it's a difficult trade-off because you can there's an infinite number of things that someone could ask for. It's kind of unpredictable. You're only assigning probabilities. And you, there's that trade-off that people have talked about a lot, uh, like people that write about software, of overgeneralizing, mm. then makes your code more complicated, yeah, yeah, yeah. takes longer. Yeah. So you kind of need to build the software for what it needs to do today, but you've got one eye on all these probabilities of things that might happen in the future. And that's why it's hard. And hopefully the yeah. robots won't get us. is <laughs> because it involves speaking to humans... And to be really good at... I mean, you can be rubbish and not speak to humans and not be good at that. I think it's a... It depends what kind of environment you work in. As you get more senior, like you're running a platform, mm. like you're you're in charge of it, you are going to have these kind of conversations. There's not going to be someone sitting above you saying, Jas, we need it to do this now. Here's a four-page requirements yeah. document. It, it's kind of... That's true. Talking about um, thinking about the future, there's um, a startup that I know a guy that works there and they've decided to use the blockchain as part of their data storage. Yeah. Um, and I, the first thing I said to him was like, why the hell are you using the blockchain? It's got to be your first question yeah, with like, anything like that. I was like, this, it, it, it's such a buzzword. It doesn't make it, initially it doesn't make any sense. The 
startup is to do with um, offering mortgages. Uh, and I was like, well, why are you not just using a database? This doesn't see, you know, blockchain seems massively complicated. It's going to cause you lots of problems, I think. Mm. Um, what's the net benefit of using it? And he was like, well, you know, one of the things I want to do is eventually we're going to uh, open these mortgages that we offer to then be resold mm-hmm. um, and have like a mortgage market. And to stop us from getting into the issue that caused the last um, credit crunch, uh, i.e. mortgage-backed securities where nobody knew what the actual mortgages were, this way, because it's on a blockchain, in theory, it's completely open and transparent. And everyone that would trade with you, you could see on the blockchain exactly what you're offering in each product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of like a long-term... They've made, a, they've made an explicit design decision now based on something they want to implement down the line. Now that's a very extreme case because yeah, they've extreme. built their entire data storage around one feature that they might want to offer down the line. Mm-hmm. Might never get there, but um, I did just want to mention that as, a, as an aside, as another example of thinking about the future yeah. where they've taken it perhaps to a bit more of an extreme. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty when you're building software mm. and it's hard think good software developers are thinking about because sometimes you just know like you know that they're going to want to like uh there's a few things that i've i built a thing recently which was like a checkout for um e-commerce websites and there was stuff to do with how they wanted to format dates and things and they asked me they were like this was for one particular client of theirs they said they've asked if we can format it like this and i'm sitting there thinking Tomorrow you could come and they could have changed their mind yeah. or the next client you're on board could want something completely different. So then when I was designing it, I thought, well, I'll have like a default implementation of how a date gets formatted, but I'll allow them to pass like a function which takes the date and then formats it. Yeah. And then in the future, if they if I need to change that for them or if they, they're actually kind of partially, te- they're pretty technical, they want to change it themselves. They can just pass it in. Yeah, they can just write another date formatter for client X that comes along. And so I'm kind of thinking like, What's the probability that, like, how fixed is this requirement? Is it, like, set in stone? That one, it felt like, for this case, it was reasonably set in stone, but for the next case, it could change. So yeah. hard coding it, I'd then have to take it out. And, it, and it's weighing up, like, the, the cost. Like, the cost of me, in that example, passing in a function was, like, nothing. Yeah. I just provided a default function, which was the one they wanted. And then I'm like, but you can pass in another one. And then yeah. it just calls the function. It took, like... 20 seconds so i think again about how general do you make it but yeah. in that example it's a it's a great one like it's always if you're if you're tra- having to do things separate ways for separate cl- for a separate client oh, you've yeah. always got to imagine that there could be another 10 clients that are going to also want different different things so then you're like well how immediately how do i solve this so then each client can have a different setting that's a classic pattern of especially enterprise software or business to business stuff where someone asks for something and you think I could have never like it's just like it's so field. specific it's so specific yeah yeah like, like I, we can't support we have to have uh, pipes between our CSV we can't have commas or something, yeah, you know, something, something stupid random you know? like you know the next 20 are not going to ask for <laughs> yeah, and then you're like yeah. oh. but then someone else will be like well it actually has to be tab separated and you're like yeah. well okay I'm going to have a setting which is what do you want your file separated by yeah yeah. Just, you can pass whatever you want but I think yeah there's a balance because you can make things too general It's tr- I think part of it is figuring out the things which you think might change but also sometimes there are things that are relatively set in stone mm. and identifying those early and uh, locking in stakeholders, which is a thing that I do. What do you so, mean? So it's kind of a little bit of a slightly, it's a very human tactic and it's a bit like cover your own ass kind of thing. But sometimes I'll think, gosh, if I, I'm going to build this in a way and if I have to change this thing, it's going to be a disaster. 
Like, mm. whatever it is in the system I'm building, I'll think, if they ever wanted to do this, so then I'll find the stakeholder for the project, I won't be like, I can save a lot of time if I make this simplification. Would you ever want to change X to be like this? Because the way I'm thinking of doing it, like, it's a lot harder. If we can make that assumption, it will save a lot of time. Yeah. And then I get them to say yes, and they just get it in writing, and then six months later when they tell you, you do want to change it, you just pull it out. <laughs> just, yeah. Just but you've got to have face. that sign-off, right? Because then yeah. they've made... Or they could. The right answer for them would be like, "I don't understand enough about the problem." Yeah, like, it feels unlikely we're going to do that. They have to. Somebody has to make that call. I think a lot, it should be the business making those calls. Yeah, and I think because like, they're paying a lot of this is yeah they're usually indirectly or directly paying, and I think throwing things back to them. I think it's like, I think the way I think of it is like, if you think of yourself as an extension of them, which sounds weird, but like they don't understand all this technical stuff, and you're kind of like, if you're just being really honest and like transparent you are their technical eyes and ears. And when you come up against a decision point like that, throwing it back to them and saying, look, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to take me a week. If you needed to ever do this, we should do it now, but you're looking at a month. Yeah, They know that it's going to cost them three weeks extra and you can have an explicit conversation about whether that's the right decision. That's good development. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, because you say it's either a week if you don't want to do it or a month now, but if you go for the week option now and you want to change it later, it's going to be three months. They can see... You know, they can see that they can make the an educated guess yeah. there about what which way and, they want to go. And in some ways, you're just asking them. I've had things in the past where I've had developers who work for me and they kind of get a bit in that scenario. They're like, but it's going to take me three extra weeks. And I'm like, they're not. I mean, I know you need to spend your time doing that, but they're not really your weeks. You're not paying for them. They're paying for them. So it makes sense for them to have the decision. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if they say, I want you to do this thing and you say, well, that's going to take an extra five weeks because it's really complicated. Then they say, but we really need it. Then it's like, well, it's just going to have to take five weeks or you have to accept the compromise or whatever it is and i think that yeah i think i think it's giving giving the because because the worst case in that scenario is that you because that thing's taken a month it's then delayed the delivery and then you know it's a month then later or three weeks later than they were expecting and then they get annoyed about it like why the hell did it take so long Mm. like well we made this decision which was to make this generic solution for this because you might want to do this down the line. They're going to be more annoyed that you have that conversation at the end where they go, that's never, ever going to happen. Yeah. Whereas at the time where you're actually coming across that problem, you go, look, what's the deal? And they go, never going to be a problem. Just do the weak one. You're like, well, there we go. And sometimes you get that and you can hear in their voice, they're totally confident that thing's never going to happen and it never does. And you're yeah. like, fine. And also they at least know the risk if they change their mind down the line. Yeah. You're giving them information that yeah. they couldn't have. Yeah. Because they don't understand all the technical stuff. They're probably not even looking... They're definitely not looking at the code in this no, sort of you know no. scenario at all. So you, but, you're, but you're right. I think describing yourself as their eyes and ears is a very good way to think about it. Yeah. Because you're trying to help them see into the application without them looking at the code, right? I mean, this this is if you're genuinely trying to do a really good job and be the best developer you can be. There might yeah. be cases where the... I mean, it, I think if you're employed by a company, it's there might be like politics, but generally I think that approach is fine. When you're working with a client, say, on a fixed cost project and you come across something like this, what do you do then? Because it's like, you've already agreed how much it would cost. If you didn't specify that thing in the requirements and it's just been left as an implicit assumption, and then you say, 
would you ever want to make this thing generic? And they say, of course I would. And you're like, that's going to add five weeks. And I've said it's going to cost $10,000. And that only accounted for four, you know, like mm. for a bunch of development. So it's kind of... I think that, that would probably, I mean, that would come down to the technicalities of um, the f- contract in that case, right? Because I think, I, think you'd, you, I think you'd be well within your rights to say, look, we can, based on the agreement, we were assuming it's going to take a week, which it will do with these provisos. Yeah. Or, you know, for an extra N thousand, we can do the fully fledged version. That's why you need ridiculously accurate requirements to do fixed cost in That's a That's why I think fixed cost doesn't work doesn't for anybody. Work. It doesn't work. It doesn't, I agree. I don't think it works. Well, the only, the only time it works is if the business have um, a, a very, very cost conscious to the point where they're willing to fix the cost in lieu of quality or speed. I think. Even then, I mean, I think... The thing is, even if you get a cracking deal as a business because some developer comes in and like yeah, lowballs, lowballs themselves, it. yeah, and then realize because that's another thing as well is with estimating. I mean, est- requirements really help with estimating solid requirements because how can you know how long something's going to take if you don't know what you're going to build? It's impossible mm, yeah, by yeah. definition. If you don't know where the finish line is and what needs to be done to get there, you cannot estimate it. No a fixed cost. Requires accurate, very accurate estimates. If you're costing based on your time, which seems superficially, there are some people on the internet nets that say you shouldn't. You should cost things on the value. So, like, if a company gets massive value out of a problem being solved for them, like it's, it's charge saying, them more. Yeah, but I think that I don't know. The way I always price things was how much was it going to take me, plus some sort of contingency, yeah. and then a margin yeah. on top, because. Yeah. yeah, I think that's. I mean, that would be the most. Those are the two ways. The problem is, is that for the, I guess for the business, it means that they guarantee the amount that the application is going to cost, and I can imagine, particularly in larger organisations, that there are projects that that they have to do that they don't want to spend a lot of money on. So, for yeah. example, regulatory Stop. application fixes. I can see there that there would be an argument for saying, look, we have to do this by law. We want to spend as little as possible. Find some company that will agree to do it for an amount that we just is just non. It will never change. So I think the the set, if you did want to do fixed cost and go through with it, which I think I've come to the conclusion, there are sometimes it maybe works where a company has technical people and they've scoped out the requirements and they're like, just build this because we don't have time to do it. Yeah, we, we don't have it. resources, yeah, yeah, but that's, like that's here fair. are some APIs and like a very technical specification. Yeah. Just make it happen. Yeah, that's, or like I think that I've never seen that particular case, but yeah, I could see that that would be useful we are like look we we need it and we just haven't got the spare capacity. We just need somebody to come in, do it and bugger off again. That, that's one place where bigger clients for me have been better is requirements because they tend to have specialists internally. They'll have some BAs. Mm. The quality of which there is a lot varies from company to company, but they've at least got someone who is on the payroll to go. Oh, I'm going to get you a design, and I'll have spoken to the customer. Yeah, and that's quite different from a small company where the founder's doing everything. Yeah, they've never built software before. Yeah, the reason that fixed cost normally doesn't work though is because when you're when you're deciding what to build, they need to come up with really accurate requirements so you can really effectively cost it. They are presumably doing fixed costs because they're sensitive to price. It's probably the most common mm. thing. Now, in order for you to come up with the requirements to a level where you can fix cost them, they may be sending this project out to multiple people to quote them. I think the unless they've really nailed the requirements, which is quite rare, then you need to do some exploratory work to figure out what to build, yeah. which reasonably needs to be built as well. So either you inflate the price of the project and take the risk that you will win the bid 
And if you win the bid, then the project's price, but then you're not being very competitive with your competitors, or you build them day by day and say, look, we need to spend five days just having a chat, understanding what it is you need to build. We need to go and hire a UX designer for a week to mm. design this thing. But yeah, you could, I don't think, you, I think you're right. You can't be like, as a as a provider of that service, you can't be like, I'll agree to a fixed cost contract without having done some initial, yeah, uh, maybe week or two of of analysis. But that's what happens with smaller companies is they they don't want to do that. Yeah, and they they're like, yeah, but we know what needs to be built because I've like told you over the phone, and you're like, yeah, but you don't have designs. That's the most common one. They yeah. want an app, and they don't have designs. And for me, the most sensible form of requirements for an app is some designs. Like, what screens are they going to be? What state oh, can they Oh, because that's be? the stuff that they'll be most pernickety about as well. Yeah, Like, yeah. oh, I don't like that colour. Oh, I don't like the way that button is. It's like, well, you need a design. Yeah, you don't even have a design, let alone if I've not implemented the design you gave me. You didn't even give me one, so... But a design is something that you can agree on well before the developer's even starting. And then the developer sure. can just focus on the actual functionality rather than, can you move that button down? Yeah, but the number of times yeah. that they don't have that... And but I, I, think, I think I would... I mean, if I was in that situation, I I would just not agree to a fixed cost. I It's not worked out for me in almost any scenario. The only way I could make it work was to charge too much. So then you can do that as part of the... Yeah, yeah, and then... So charge too much and then... Because also things go wrong. So when you, you, you're really going to get held to your estimates in a... The, the thing that's good about it is you're putting your money where your mouth is on your estimates and it makes you get very real about your estimation in a way that I've not experienced. Because often you're like, yeah, that'll be fine. When it's like... Yeah, because you're like, it doesn't, if it overruns, it overruns. It overruns, it's someone else's cost. The, yeah. the, the model is the cost is on them. Yeah. When the cost's on you, all of a sudden you're like, that could go terrible. I know that library's unreliable. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you're like, uh, you become like this sort of nervous wreck of like everything. And then someone's going through all the estimates with you and they'll be like, you said two weeks for this. And you're like, well... What if this goes wrong? But that comes back to the requirement sounding simple from a sentence or a part, you know, human point of view, they but do. actually underneath being very, very complicated. They often do. And I think it's a weird thing about, I don't know if it's like the universe or what it is, but that is just a true thing. You can, these things sound simple. You can describe a feature very, very terse, very compactly in a few words, yeah. but that actually translates to weeks of effort. Yeah. Or there's nuance where you can ask one question and the whole thing falls apart and then it becomes like three paragraphs of like, yeah. if this happens, and you're like, oh God, yeah, never saw this coming. Yeah. But yeah, so I think requirements are just very important. For yeah, I think um, I think it's a really interesting discussion, actually. I, again, it's one of these ones that when we started, I, I thought, it was it wouldn't be but that much to say, but there's actually a lot of nuance, like you said, to it, and it's and it's it's really hard to. I mean, it's nigh and impossible to get right, but you've got to. I think as a developer, being aware that it's going to be that they're fluid, never taking them as sort of gospel. Yeah, I think is a great starting point. Assume yes. they're going to change. Ask questions not, about them. Not bite off too much, which you said. Yeah. So try and if you're going to do requirements, maybe. Don't be don't scope six months worth of work. Scope mm. one month or or two weeks or something. Yeah, and do it in. I mean, the agile way in in that in requirements way makes sense, right? Like a week sprint or two weeks sprint, like yeah. that. In two weeks time, what can we deliver? Yeah, uh, and I think and keeping that cycle as short as possible will mean that you're not going to have that issue, like you said, where you're going to get rid of having to throw away or redesign yeah. loads of work. It, yeah, I guess someone has to make sure all those chunks add up. 
But yeah, now in a small company, yeah, that might all of these roles might be the same person. But I think if you're, I think if you have those sort of distinct things that you want to do, uh, distinct tasks, so you've got somebody who needs to make sure that at the higher level it's all coming together. That can be a non-technical person. Yeah, you can have you can be like, look, I'm going to focus on uh, specking out what we're going to deliver this week. And then turfing over to say the founder or the the CEO, um, look, can you keep an eye on the fact that well, it's generally going in the right direction because he knows what he wants. So I feel like you can spread the spread the load a bit more rather than just going away for a month and coming back to, and delivering something underwhelming. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, I think we're done. Yeah. All right. Exit zero. <laughs>